Hello, welcome to the second episode of Freaking Out about Cincinnati's opening day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. Today, we are going to discuss opening day first and special occasions with Greg Rhodes. Greg is the former executive director of the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame and Museum and now serves as a Cincinnati Reds team historian and has authored or co-authored six books on the Cincinnati Reds. Greg has twice won one of the Society for American Baseball Research's top awards, the Sporting News Sabre Baseball Research Award. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Thank you, Randy, and it is really a pleasure to be freaking out about opening day, I must say. Absolutely. So, hey, Greg, first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about what a team historian does. For you know, Reds. if you figure this out, if you find out, let me know. <laughs> uh, I always joke, I always say it's the perfect excuse uh, when I'm introduced as a team historian for somebody to come up and ask me a question I do not know the answer to. <laughs> that never fails. Well, that happens but, to me uh, in my job, too. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I do some, uh, I'm largely, to be honest about it, largely retired. Uh, when I retired as director of the Hall of Fame, I still wanted to stay involved a little bit with the Reds, and they still wanted me to do some things. So we came up with this title, a team historian. And uh, so I do some public relations work for the club and some radio work for the club and, you know, here and there. And so it's a great retirement job, I must say. That's great. When we were chit-chatting before we came on the air here, you mentioned you're teaching some courses. Yes. uh, Through the OLLI program at UC, OLLI stands, it's a lifelong learning. It's for people 50 and over. So I think we probably both qualify. Okay, I can probably come to one of these classes. Uh, Yeah, and it's uh, all non-credit. It's just for the enjoyment and the fun of, uh, you know, for uh, for learning. It's, as, as we often say, it is the way you would always hope college could be. No grades, no assignments, no attendance. It probably sounds like your sophomore year, actually. <laughs> <laughs> High school and college, probably. But anyway, yeah, it's a good, it's a good little program, and uh, I've, I've enjoyed I've been teaching some Reds classes there, yeah, Reds history. That's fantastic. Well, like our first episode, we have a lot to cover today, ladies and gentlemen, so let's get to it. And we're talking about first, so let's just remind ourselves of the two big firsts we talked about in episode one. And, of course, the very first professional game was in 1869 on May 4th, featuring the famous Red Stockings versus the Great Westerns. And we talked about that before, but they were on their way, the Red Stockings, to an undefeated season that's never been matched. Then in 1886, the very first opener that the Reds celebrated as a special day on the calendar, kind of an official opening day, and the later influence of Frank Bancroft, the subject of episode four with John Arardi. Today, we're going to discuss notable first pitches, the first Hall of Fame pitching matchup, and the second one, actually. Some famous debuts in broadcasting, some notable players taking the field for the first time on opening day, and the first and only opening night games, scheduled and unscheduled. We may work in a few others as well, but let's start with first pitches. As you probably know, the ceremonial first pitch is a long-standing ritual of baseball, and the tradition involves having a guest of honor throw a ball to mark the end of pregame festivities and the start of the game. No one knows who started the ritual, but there are newspaper accounts about it dating back to 1890. In the years after 1890, the guest threw the ball from his or her place in the grandstand to the umpire, 
or in some cases to the pitcher. Today, the first pitch is often delivered from the pitcher's mound to the catcher behind home plate. The thing I discovered in my research, you know, only three presidents have ever appeared for a Reds game. And this is actually a fourth because he was governor of Ohio at the time. And in 1894, the very first first pitch on opening day for the Reds occurred on April 20, 1894. And Governor William McKinley, after the parade was canceled due to rain, and the dedication ceremonies for the new league park were canceled, Governor McKinley made a few remarks after the band's open-air concert and then tossed a brand-new baseball to the umpire to begin the first game in League Park. And that is, I noted, was the first of literally over 100 first pitches on opening day. McKinley was elected president of the U.S. two years later. Now, Greg, are there any other uh, notable first pitches on opening day. Well, uh, n- number one, I would say, uh, as you know, and I, I don't remember if you mentioned this in the opening or not, but uh, I had done a book on opening day and then you've done a, a, a second book on opening day. And I'm sure there are probably things in my book that you discovered that you didn't know. And and then it's the same way. I found a few. And so the McKinley pitch, I did not realize. I had thought that the first opening pitch was actually 1895. Uh, with a Cincinnati mayor involved in it, exactly. Uh, but 1894, having the uh, future governor or having a future president here was great. And and as you noted, that was the opening because that's another sort of first has been the, the times when we've opened a new ballpark on opening day, and uh, uh, and and so in 1894 we opened a brand new ballpark. It was supposed to be a fireproof ballpark. Of course, it burned down uh, <laughs> a few years <laughs> later, uh, but. Uh, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a it was the biggest grandstand, I mean, most grand, uh, biggest facility the Reds had played in up to that point. So of course they would have done something a little out of the ordinary for the for the first day. Uh, but the other, but as, as I said, in eighteen ninety five, uh, six and seven, they had three little interesting episodes with the first pitch. Okay, uh, eighteen ninety five, they invited the mayor of Cincinnati, and he sat in a private. In a, in a little box seat area right behind home plate. And as you noted, he didn't go out to the mound. He just, uh, hand, in fact, the ball, he had the ball, it was still in the box. That You know, hmm. like the ball come, came in a little box. Exactly. He took the ball out of the box and handed it to the umpire. That was sort of the first pitch ceremony, as it were. The next year, uh, he brazenly decided to toss the ball to the umpire and toss it over its head, make, <laughs> marking that the first First wild pitch, first pitch wild pitch uh, in Reds history. Of course, that was capped off by Mayor Mark Mallory's infamous throw back in, uh, God, was that 2006, seven? Yeah, eight, around somewhere there someplace, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, that was a monumental uh, wild pitch yeah, for the ages. Yeah, I think you can catch that on YouTube. Yes, you can for the ages. It's, I mean, through it, it, it was it was wide of the plate, let's just say generously, although it was measured in yards, not in inches. <laughs> um, so then in 1890, that was 1896 when, it, when, the, when the mayor tossed the ball over. And then next year, they sent a, they, they, the, the Reds sent a carriage to the city hall to pick up the mayor to take him, bring him to the game. And the next year, for some reason or another, the carriage did not arrive on time. 
and the game is supposed to start and the players are standing around. There's a little illustration in the newspaper. No, no photos yet in 1897, but they're all the players are sort of standing around looking up at the empty box seat because the mayor is <laughs> late to the party. And in fact, he was so late, they just they skipped all the opening ceremonies and just went right to the game. He arrived 30 or 40 minutes late, so it was too late. And they, so no what, first pitch that year. So when but did the, they stop throwing it from the grandstand? Well, I don't know exactly when they stopped throwing it because I don't think they did it necessarily a first pitch ceremony every year, but they may have. But uh, the first time that I am aware, and you may have some different info on this, but the first time that I'm aware that they actually threw the pitch, first pitch from the mound was in, I think, 1913. Uh, Mayor Henry Hunt threw the ball from the mound. That was quite a, uh, that, that was a little break in tradition to have him actually come out to the mound. Um and again, then I don't know whether or not they continued that tradition every year from the mound or if they reverted back to the grandstand, but they they almost always did have a first pitch ceremony of some type. But by the 30s and 40s, it definitely was from the mound uh, all the time. And uh, as you noted, you know, Digna, the, the governor of Ohio or the, in 1894, uh, governors, the, the ceremonies often included governors. We we could often get the governor here, and not only from Ohio, we'd get the Kentucky governor here as right. well. Well, we got we Happy have, Chandler. Yeah, that. yeah, Happy Chandler, who was both governor and senator from Kentucky, and for many years, the late forties, early fifties, was um, commissioner of baseball, mm-hmm. and held and had his offices right here in downtown Cincinnati. He he wanted to be close to his home in Kentucky, and he didn't want to move to New York. And he kept the he kept the the major league baseball offices were right here in Cincinnati for a number of years. That's where they belong. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I think we'd make different decisions on things these that's, days if they were in Cincinnati. That's right. And when this doesn't have anything to do with opening day, but when Warren Giles, who was president of the Reds in the late forties, early fifties, uh, he left the Reds to become president of the National League. And he moved into Chandler's old offices, the commissioner's old office down in the Carew Tower. So uh, Cincinnati had a, you know, <laughs> uh, we all know that we're the heart of baseball. But for a long time, we really were the command post and everything right here in Cincinnati. Right. How about the vice mayor in 1954, was it? Yeah. Uh, Dorothy Dolby? Dolby. That's an interesting story. Uh, she was pressed into service because the mayor at the time was quite ill. And could not make it. And uh, she, a couple of things, she took, she took, uh, she whatever clothes she wore, she took other shoes to wear, to, so she didn't have to pitch in heels, which I thought was very smart, very <laughs> smart. And secondly, her family, because they had known about this for a week or ten days that the mayor was too ill to attend, and so uh, her family, who they were big sports fans, they went to a lot of Reds games. Uh, they would work, they pitched practice, had her practice in the backyard and her husband <laughs> had, had without telling her set up, set up the distance at 65 feet or so. <laughs> so she would have plenty of arm to get it there. And she did, she got it there. Uh, she threw in a, she threw it all the way to the plate from the man. I mean, that was back. I mean, she threw it the whole, the whole distance. So was it a strike? No, it was not a strike. Uh, it was generously, uh, it was ruled a ball, not a wild pitch, but I think it was actually a little bit uh, beyond the reach of the catcher, let's just say. She really <laughs> heaved it. And I think Governor Lausch was at that uh, opening day. You mentioned governors. How about presidents? 
Have we ever had a president throw out the first pitch? Well, I um, George Bush did. Yes, George W. Bush did, uh, and I think that's the only one. That I'll tell you a funny little story. We uh, the year before that, uh, uh, Vice President Cheney came in to throw the first pitch, and uh, that was the first year the Reds Hall of Fame opened, and we were all excited we were going to get the first pitch ball. Right, you know, signed by the vice president to put it on display in the the new Reds Hall of Fame. This is going to be great, and uh, so we we had it all arranged. You know, we had uh, uh, we had talked to whoever the catcher was at that point, and uh, had the pen down there for him to you know, and everything. Cheney throws the pitch, uh, signs the ball, and then put the ball in his coat pocket and took it back to Washington with him. <laughs> Well, you know, we didn't have anything to say about that. Okay, well, if he wanted it, then yeah. But when George Bush, uh, George W. Bush, did throw out the first pitch, we did get a we did get a, a ball from that. So and that's in the Hall of and, Fame. And and also they they gave him a special Reds jacket to wear. And uh, we have a I don't know whether they gave him two copies of that or whatever. Anyway, we have the, the, essentially the jacket that that was given to the president. So yeah, so we did wind up with a few things, but that was so funny when Cheney put the ball in his pocket. <laughs> Okay, I guess we're not going to see that one. Okay, well, we've talked about first pitches. How about real uh, pitchers uh, during games, uh, Hall of Fame pitchers? Well, you pointed out the first matchup was what, in 23? Or when was that? 19? I think 22, 1922. Epa Rixie and um, who was the? Uh, Cleveland. Grover yeah, Cleveland. Grover Cleveland Alexander. Um and I mean that was right. You had two Hall of Fame pitchers on the mound in Cincinnati on opening day. Of course, the Reds have not had that many Hall of Fame pitchers <laughs> right, over exactly. the years. <laughs> not exactly what they're known for. Um, and so uh, the uh, uh, the only other time that it's happened uh, came in nineteen seventy nine or eight seventy nine eighty when Tom Seaver who you know, appeared for the Reds there for a few years. Uh, right. They got him in the trade from the Mets. Yeah. And he pitched against Steve Carlton in the opener. Right. And both of those guys wound up in Cooperstown. So that was a heck of an opener. Um, I think that's the only time it's That was 81. Two times. That was 1981, that that one. Uh, how about broadcasting you know, first? You know, Wade Hoyt, Let's, the, uh, the great Reds broadcaster. Sure. Who would have debuted here on opening day in 41 or 42. He won two opening day games in Cincinnati back in the mid thirties. He played. He, he, I think he was playing for the Pirates, and he won two uh, pitching for the Pirates. And he started two openers here and won them both. And, and this the, was after the he played for the Yankees. Yeah, after he left the Yankees. Yeah, uh, so that's kind of an interesting little opening day tidbit for for Wade Hoyt fans, of which I know there are still some out there. But I am uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, we we've had such terrific. Uh, uh, run of broadcasters here, beginning with um, Red Barber in the 1930s. And Barber would have debuted on opening day 1934. Uh, and it was not only did did he debut as an announcer on that day, but it was the very first Major League Baseball game he had ever seen because he came out of Florida in the 20s and 30s, grew up down there. There was no ba- Major League Baseball in Florida. And Atlanta didn't have a team yet. And he'd, he, had, he had called some college games. And he probably had seen some minor league ball, but he had never seen a major league baseball game. And so during that spring training, he stayed down in Florida and uh, uh, got to know the Reds player, saw him play several times. So 
by the time we got up here to Cincinnati, he was a little more familiar with the players. But that 1934 opener was the, the first beginning. time first, Red Barber ever saw a major league baseball game. He actually the, called the game. The first game he broadcast. Yeah, <laughs> that's a major league baseball announcement. I think he's the old redhead or something. Yeah, like the that. old redhead. Now we also have Marty Brenneman in town. I think he's right up there with Red I've Barber, heard of Wade him. Hoyt. I've heard of him. Forty years later, after Red Barber debuted, uh, another Southerner. Marty was from Virginia, and and that's where he cut his chops. Was in, uh, in with the with the minor league baseball club in Virginia, and then that was the old uh, American Basketball Association had a franchise, the Virginia Squires, and Marty called those games. And those are some of the tapes that he sent to Dick Wagner, who was then uh, assistant general manager of the Reds. And Dick Wagner was going to make the decision or he was going to have a big say in it. And in 1974, uh, Al Michaels leaves to go to San Francisco after Al was here for three years. And uh, Dick Wagner said that there was no there was no focus groups. No poll, you know, it was, right. just, it was just Dick said he, he was getting tapes, you know, because the word was out. The Reds needed a new play-by-play guy. And uh, he had a lot of tapes to listen to. And he said he'd listen to him for a few minutes. And if, if he didn't like the, I mean, it was basically, did, did I find this guy easy to listen to? Nope. Throw that tape away. Throw that tape away. Throw that tape away. And finally, Brenneman surfaced and uh, – uh, he was the easiest guy to listen to. They called him in for the interview, and the rest was history. That's uh, an incredible story. And then he had a, lo- a little bit of pressure on him in 1974, I believe, when he called his first game on opening day. Well, he certainly did. Now, he you know, he started with Joe Nuxall uh, in spring training, and there's the famous story about <laughs> Marty. Uh, <laughs> you know, Al Michaels has been there the whole time, and Al had – left big shoes to fill himself. You know, Al was very popular. And, uh, but Marty was kind of anxious to put Al in the rear view mirror and, you know, we're going to forget about Al now. It's going to be about me. And uh, the very first game they call, uh, the Reds play in Al Lopez Field. And Marty says, welcome everybody to today's game from Al Michaels Field. <laughs> and, uh, I've heard that yeah. story from Marty and, himself. And Joe and he said told, Joe about fell off his chair. Yeah, Joe loved that story. Uh, but the opening day pressure was the fact that Hank Aaron had finished the season prior to, you know, finished the 73 season at 713 home runs. He needed one more to tie Ruth, uh, two more to break the the then all-time home run record. And here were the Braves playing in Cincinnati on opening day, 1974, and the young Marty Brenneman. <laughs> Very uh, first game. Calling his first professional baseball game. Probably or the most. First, uh, first major league game. You know, we talk baseball, but that was probably the most legendary record in all of sports. Yes. At that I mean, time, Babe there, was no more, there was no more significant record. That's exactly right. Uh, and now I couldn't even tell you what the home run record is. But when I was a kid growing up, I mean, 715, that was magical. That was, uh, or 714, that was Roos' record. Yeah. So how'd Marty do? He, on the call. He, oh, it was. I think it was a great call. Uh, and then, and then the hard part about it was, uh, was the he had to then sort of ad lib and and keep the thing going for about twenty minutes because I had all these celebrities down on the field and making there were some PA announcements, some interruptions. Jack Billingham always said, "Geez, if I'd have known they were going to take twenty minutes, I would have gone and sat in the dugout." But he said, 
it, it, you know, he'd stood out there for a while and he said, I couldn't, I couldn't leave the field while the vice president was talking or while right. Aaron was talking or whatever. So, uh, but so Marty had to, that, that's one, I mean, he had to fill in for about 20 minutes while they took care of all the, the dignitaries and all of the hoopla on the field. But yeah, what a way to open your broadcast career. He was probably fortunate it happened right in the first inning. He could get it out of it, out of, out of his system. I know there was a lot of pressure not to play Aaron in that first Right. series because right. they want him to tie and break the record in Atlanta. At home, right, which he ended up breaking the record in Atlanta. Yeah, the commissioner had to stand, uh, uh, speak up and say, no, right. Aaron's going to play, I think, Gotta at play. least two out of three games in Cincinnati. Yeah, and, you know, Jack Millingham was on the mound, and uh, I think Jack said it was a 3-1 and one, three and oh count, 3-1 and one count, and um, Aaron hadn't swung at a pitch. Uh you know, up to that point, and the next pitch he saw, a line drive right over the left field wall. Henry Aaron made his major league debut in Cincinnati on an opening day in 1954, the same year that we well, yeah, want to talk Dolby, about uh, that. That Dorothy Dolby threw out the first pitch. Hank Aaron makes his major league debut. He went 0 for 5, I think. He did not have a great day, and it's like one of those things. If you were in the fan in the stands, you would never have said to yourself walking home, "Oh, I just saw." you know, this great young player make his debut. No, you wouldn't think anything about it at all. But later on, what well, what a great ticket stub to have had Hank Aaron's uh, first first major league game. And he was the first African-American to play for that club, right? Uh, Hank Aaron? Not positive. Or at least one that. of the first. He would have been one of the very first. And how about Reds players that have debuted on uh, opening day that were African-American? Well, uh, Frank Robinson would be the... Uh, probably the first to debut on opening day because Chuck Harmon breaks the color barrier with the Reds in 1954. That was not on opening day. And in the 1955 lineup, I don't think Chuck started. And I don't know who the pitcher was in 55, probably Nuxall. Anyway, my guess is Frank Robinson was the first African-American in an opening day. To actually play in the game. To play in an opening day. Yeah. Yeah. Play in the lineup. Any other famous debuts by players? How about uh, one of my favorites, Pete Rose? Do well, you, recall, were, you know were that you there? story. You know that story. I was not there. I was a uh, high school junior in Richmond, Indiana. Okay. So we, we were not coming to opening days as a fan. We didn't do that. But uh, yeah, Pete's debut. Of course, again, it's one of those things where now you look back on it, you realize that you know, you know how historically significant it was. And it was a big deal at the time. Pete was the local kid. And he had gotten a lot of attention that spring training and, you know, could he make the team and then would he make the starting lineup? And, you know, Hutch named him, Fred Hutchinson, the manager, names him to the starting lineup on the eve of uh, opening day. And Pete's uh, Pete's taken the field playing second base. Right. Leo Cardenas was his double play partner at shortstop. And Mickey Mantle had dubbed him Charlie Hustle in spring training. And then I think his very first at bat, he walked. And he sprinted the first base. Yeah. Uh, Pete got so much attention for that uh, in his early days. Uh, that was, it was such a novelty. Nobody had ever seen this before. <laughs> and he got, he was roundly teased for it and criticized for it. A little hot dog, you know, trying to show everybody up or whatever. And um, uh, Vin Scully, early in his career, Vin Scully, the great broadcaster for the Dodgers, uh, said, had a, had a line about, well, there's ball four, and Pete Rose has just beat out a walk to first base. <laughs> <laughs> As Pete goes streaking down the line. 
Um, well, you know, the Enquirer had a sports editor back in those days, Al Heim. And after that opening day, he devoted an entire column to Rose. And one of his, his quotes I really like was, Rose is always in a hurry. It's not because he's excited or nervous. It's just the way he plays baseball. He drew applause from the capacity crowd in the first inning when he drew a walk and ran to first base with the vigor of a man trying to beat out a bunt. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's so unusual yeah, back in it those was. days. Well, it was. Well, it still is. is. Yeah, right. exactly. You don't, you, I mean, I don't think anybody does that. And I guess the, you know, I, I think the most notable after that is probably Junior. Yeah, Junior's debut. Of course, that was not his major league debut, but that 2000, that was 2001, I think that opener was, boy, that was highly anticipated. Highly anticipated. Junior coming to Cincinnati. And of course, Junior over the, did, wound up not having his best years in Cincinnati. He still had a, he still had a decent run here, a good, good, good run. And nothing compared to that 2001 debut for Griffin. Yeah. That, that was, that was just, yeah, that was over the top. It was the second coming to Babe Ruth, everybody. <laughs> yeah. So we've talked about opening day. Have there ever been a night openers, opening nights? Yeah. You know, you, ha um, 1966, the Reds had an unintentional opening night, accidental opening night. Okay. They, um, that was the year, that, that was the year after Frank Robinson had been traded. So the fans were already a little disgruntled and then opening day is rained out. And the next day is rained out, and the next day is rained out. They lost the entire series, opening series, and they wound up opening on the road. And then they they had about a there was about an eight day road trip or whatever, and they come home at the end of that road trip. And the next game at home was a scheduled night game, and so they wound up that ended up being their opener, and they played at night, um, and got beat. I think Nuxall started that game. Um, Relatively small crowd, I think. They oh didn't yeah, get... ten thousand, and I don't, and I don't even I don't even know how much of the hoopla they had. I think they had a little presentation on the field ahead of the ahead of the game. With yeah, because uh, Finley Market, the guys at Finley Market would would often have a presentation. They would do a couple things. They would present a flag, uh, and they would that would be the flag. They'd run up the flagpole, then they'd march out, and they had a band on the field, and they would play the national anthem. That was part of the ceremony. And the other thing that they always did was presented bouquets of flowers and fruit baskets <laughs> to the manager, to the general manager, to the owner, to the, I mean, it's just. <laughs> it's, it's really kind of funny. I mean, in it retrospect, is. the things it they is. did. It is. Uh, how about, I think there was an official opening night, wasn't there? An attempt to have an official opening night back in 1994 yeah, with right. uh, ESPN. Yes, exactly. And that came about because Marge shot, you know, well. I don't know if you told the story in your earlier podcast about the fact that for many years, the Reds had the tradition of not only opening the season at home, but playing the first game in the major, in the major league. So the season not only started, I mean, the season overall season began with that first game in Cincinnati, which was always at home by the mid eighties, early eighties, that tradition had started to fade away. And Marge was never happy about it. She always wanted it to return. And she lobbied Major League Baseball. And in 1994, they agreed to give her the first game. Great. This is great. She was happy. The Reds will start a day early. And uh, I don't know whether or not they realized that at the time the Reds did, Marge did, or when it became apparent. But <laughs> at some point, the schedule comes out and they're opening. Yes, they're opening here. They're opening a day early. But it's on 
Easter Sunday night. <laughs> and Marge had a fit. We're not opening the season on a Sunday night, and we're certainly not opening it on Easter. People should be home, you know, families should be at home on Easter Sunday, not at the ball game. And she on and on she went and she scheduled they rescheduled, including the parade and everything else. They rescheduled it all for the next day for Monday. You mean they they rescheduled the celebration, but the yes, game went on. The game went on. And the uh, the funny thing about it was there was no hoopla. There were, they didn't put the bunting up at the ballpark. They the Reds in no way treated it different than any other game. And of course, Major League Baseball was like, I mean, they've got ESPN is on national TV, and you would expect to see some festivities or uh, you know all that going on. Nothing, and that did not make Major League Baseball happy. Uh, but the Reds then did have the they did play the next day, and. Um, had the parade the next day and everything <laughs> yeah, else. That's, that's really... crazy. And you know, Marge had she had a run of openers there. I mean, in '94, that was a that was a little bit of a stress. And then '95, you know, there was the strike at the end of the '94 season, and so it, it was remained. Uh, the players remained on strike into spring training, uh, or into what should have been the start of spring training. Uh, and the the Major League Baseball announced they were going to hire replacement players. So they're going to hire major leaguers, retired major leaguers, college players, coaches, minor any anybody they could get to fill out the rosters. And they were going to start the season on time. They were not going to let it be delayed. Well, the Finley Market guys all went ahead and put all the plans together for the opening day parade. And then on the eve of opening day, they announced a settlement to the strike and they gave the players two two or three weeks for spring training and right. announced that that uh, the season would actually open then like two and a half weeks later. And so the guys at Finley Market, they were like, well, what are we going to do? We've got all the plans made. We had, I mean, that was in the day when they would get the Clydesdales here and the Clydesdales are in town, all this stuff's going on. And they uh, they went ahead and held a parade anyway. Yeah, no you know, game. Well, there was held a parade, but there was no game. What I think was hilarious about that parade was the fact they had replacement floats. Yes. And yeah, so yeah, some they, of the floats had like they, replacement yeah, float yes. on the side of they, it. They joked around. They joked with that that idea, the, the replacement floats. Well, um, hey, hey, Greg, this God, has been a was... lot of fun talking about a lot of firsts on opening day history. But you mentioned to me the other day one of the last things that occurred in Reds baseball on opening day. And why don't you just tell us about that briefly? That... Yeah, not only a, a last for Reds baseball, but a last in Major League history. Back in the early days of baseball, it was very common when teams would oversell, you know, so have a sold-out ballpark, they would allow fans to sit or stand on the field. They would put them up against the outfield <laughs> fences. They would string ropes around and keep the crowds. And then they would put, you know, a few thousand people out on the actual playing field. And now back in the dead ball day, that wasn't such a big deal because the ball didn't travel that far. Ballparks, had, you know, had long fences. So it didn't come into play. Well, over the years, as new ballparks were built, uh, the other clubs all quit doing that. And the Reds quit doing it too, except for opening, opening day. day. And because they always had a sellout crowd on opening day, and especially if the weather was nice, they'd have, you know, they'd put two or 3,000 extra seats up against the outfield <laughs> walls, especially out in left field and center field. And, uh, and so that tradition finally came to an end in 1959. Wow. That was the last that was the last time that they ever did it. And uh, it just got to the point where John Murdo, who was the old business manager of the Reds, later the business manager of the Bengals, 
told me that they it, it was very hard to accommodate people. They had to they set up the wooden folding chairs, and if it was soggy, the chairs would sink into the ground <laughs> a little bit. And there was no concessions out there. There was no right. restrooms or anything, and so it was just awkward. And then, of course, uh, especially as the players are starting to hit the ball further, and you got a more lively ball, you've got balls flying into those uh, temporary seats all the time. So it's ground rule double after ground rule double, and it kind of made a farce out of the game. Yeah. So they just quit. They quit doing it. But that was the last time, opening day, nineteen fifty nine. So if Bob Cass, I always tell Bob, you didn't need to. If there's one tradition you should bring back, that would be great on opening day. That would be, <laughs> what a kick! So sit, wouldn't that be fun to sit on the field and watch the game? Actually, yeah, just sit right on the field. We could be out on the warning track, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that'd be fantastic. Ah, that'd be that'd be that'd well. Be a, you know, Greg, uh, we could probably sit here and chat all day long, and I wish we could. But I really want to thank you uh, for coming in today and being with us. It's a great privilege. Well, Randy, here, I, Greg I'm Rhodes. happy to do it, and I appreciate all your enthusiasm and the book that you did and uh, all the joy and excitement you bring to opening day personally. Uh, you, you've made a big impact on the opening day story yourself here in Cincinnati. Well, you know, it's my favorite holiday. It's my family's favorite holiday. So, everybody, I hope you've enjoyed this second episode of Freaking Out on opening day. And we'll tune in to more of our episodes over the coming weeks. I don't know if we can top this one with Greg Rhodes, but we'll try. This is Randy Freaking signing off and in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman. So long, everybody.